Remain standing for just a moment. We are going to go into the Word. Uh, We thank God for this opportunity to share with you on today. Uh, Our text this morning is from 1 Peter chapter 2, and uh, we will be sharing from verses 9 and 10. 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 9 and 10. When you find that, say, I got it. And Amen. You ready? All right. Let's read. Uh, but you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Verse 10, once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. I want to talk today in our series, Exile Studies in First Peter. Our subject today, the transforming power of Christ. Amen. You may be seated in the presence of the Lord. The transforming power of Christ. Now, previously, I shared with you that it is important we know who Jesus really is. And that the great truth of his identity is a gift that God gives to those who would believe in Jesus by faith. To those who would believe, God reveals His Son, Jesus, as we learned last week, to be the living stone, the cornerstone, and the stumbling stone. In this precious text of Scripture, Chapter 2, verses 9 and 10, Peter continues to reveal the magnificent gifts that God gives to believers. To these spiritual exiles, just like those of us who believe, God has done something so marvelous. So wonderful that he leaves no doubt that it was accomplished by a power infinitely greater than ourselves. God has done something. Only an omnipotent, all-powerful God can do. He transformed all who would believe from the depths of a life marked by sin, fleshly desires, and darkness to a life filled with grace, joy, holiness, peace, and the marvelous light of his presence. It is so complete of a transformation and so much 
a work of God that many Christians mistakenly believe it to be a work of their own doing. We run around here saying, I got saved. (laughs) I didn't have sense enough to get saved. I don't know, maybe you were smarter than me, but I... I wasn't bright enough to get saved. I didn't know that I was sinking deep in sin far from a peaceful shore. I didn't know that that I was sinking never to rise anymore. But the master of the sea heard my despairing cry and from the waters lifted me. Now safe am I and I can say and maybe you can say it with me. It was love. It was love that lifted me. He brought us from death to life. In fact, the pride of the human spirit, as we shall see, often handicaps believers from experiencing the true joy of this transformative work of God. Instead of remaining stuck in the bondage of flesh, God offers to each person, each believer, each person freedom in the light and life of Christ. Now, in order to do this, God used a subtle but incredible display of his mighty power. Now, my brothers and sisters, power is a funny thing. In the hands of people, power destroys far more than it builds. In the hands of people, power hurts much more than it helps. In the hands of human beings, power corrupts much more than it corrects. But in the right hands, the hands of an omnipotent or almighty God, this power transforms lies from darkness to light. It is this transformative work of Jesus Christ that separates those saved by grace from those yet walking in the darkness and the futility of their own minds. This transformation, a process that begins with believing the gospel of Jesus and continuing through a process that we call sanctification is precisely what causes the tension between the believer and the world. You do know there's tension between believers and the world, right? You'd have to be living under a rock on the moon (laughs) to not know that there's tension right now between believers and the world. As I have previously stated, it was critical for Peter to inform the believers of his day of this fact. And it is just as critical today for believers to know that the tension we feel in very real ways as we try to live and navigate this world, this tension is not without cause and purpose. A true disciple of Jesus Christ is not supposed to fit in. That may be news to some of us, but we're not supposed to fit in your faith 
Your relationship with God was not designed by God for you to fit in and be comfortable in this world. Not supposed to have comfort in this world. Spiritual comfort. Our spirits and our souls ought always be uneasy. Why? Because as the old saint said, this world is not my home. I'm just a pilgrim passing through. I'm on my way to the promised land. And so, if we live for Christ, we will have trouble in this world. Look at somebody and tell them, you too. John chapter 16, verse 33, our Lord Jesus says these words. He says, I've said these things to you, that in me you may have peace. Why do I need peace? Here it is. Because in the world, you will have tribulation. But take heart. (laughs) Y'all ain't getting this. But take heart. I have overcome the world. Watch this now. Watch this. As we journey, we know that the presence of Christ means That even though there are trials, even though there is trouble, even though I may have to live the words of the old old song that says, trouble in my way, I have to cry sometime. I am transformed by my Savior who is with me every step of this journey from earth to glory. Every step of the way. I heard him say the other day, and lo, I'm with you always, even to the end of the age. In addition, this transformation is wrought by the power of his presence in believers. My brothers and sisters, we are not changed from the outside in, as some would have you to believe. But we are changed from the inside out. Now, anything that I can shape with my hands is subject to be what I want it to be. Amen. How many people in here, and I'm about to date some of y'all, remember Play-Doh? Throw your hand up. Don't let everybody know how old y'all. Just before video games... uh, (laughs) <laughs> that picture, that picture. Now, Plato, you can you can shape it to what you want to be. You see there the the, the mighty arms there, the of the picture, and 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 the other one. Look at the other one has eyes but no mouth, right? That's what boys shape marriage to be with Plato. I just. All the husbands here, that's him. That's not me, but that's not me, honey. That's, that's pastor. I didn't do that. I didn't know. But now look at, the, look at the second picture here, and you'll find out what girls shape little boys to be. Now he has, he has, is the picture up there, second picture? Okay, there it is. All right. Here's what, here's what, now notice this picture. Women will allow us to have a face, a nose, and a mouth, but there are no legs and arms. You can't go anywhere. <laughs> you have to stay home, brothers. That's what. <laughs> 
anything that I shape from the outside in, I make it what I want it to be. But as believers, we are not shaped from the outside in. We're shaped from the inside. Let's, let me just show you some scriptures that prove that. Romans chapter 5 and verse 5 says, And hope does not put us to shame. Why? Because God's love has been poured. Now think about that. God poured his love out. He didn't just scoop it out a little at a time. God actually actually took his love and just dumped it on us. Watch this now. (laughs) He says he poured his love into, into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. Now, 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 19 says this. Or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? You are not your own. Now here, in case you haven't gotten it yet, in Titus chapter 3, verses 4 through 7, watch this now. He says, but when the goodness and loving kindness of God, our Savior, appeared, he saved us. Not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy. Oh, you ought to get happy on this right here. By the washing of regeneration and renewal of the... This is inside out stuff, y'all. The renewal of the Holy Spirit whom he poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ our Savior. Verse 7 says, so that being justified by his grace we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. Now, now from a spiritual perspective, transformation means change. But not just any change. When Christ transforms us, his work uh, in our lives is complete and total regarding our salvation. In other words, I'm not a little bit saved. I'm all the way saved. Hallelujah. For, for example, upon receiving Christ as Savior, we move from being an enemy and a stranger alienated from God to being a citizen of a new kingdom and a member of God's very own family. The Apostle Paul describes this transformation thusly in Ephesians chapter 2, verses 11 through 13. He says these, he writes these words, Therefore, Remember that at one time, you Gentiles, that's us, you Gentiles in the flesh called the uncircumcision by what is called by what is called the circumcision, which is made in the flesh by hands. Look at verse 12. Remember that you were at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers to the covenants of promise having no hope and without God in the world. But I love this next verse. But now, that was then, this is now. But now in Christ Jesus, you who once were afar off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. Hallelujah. That's a praiseworthy moment right there. Notice here that Paul reveals that the Gentiles were not members 
of God's chosen family before Christ. They were ethnically and spiritually separated from Israel. And they were separated from the covenant promises enjoyed by Israel. Now, this means two separate and distinct nations, one a recipient of the covenant promise made to Abraham and the other, which was ridiculed and rejected by the very nation of promise. But look what happens here. The blood of Christ transformed the Gentiles. Something, something happened to us Gentiles. The blood of Christ transformed the Gentiles, bringing them into the family of God. Now, I want you to remember that because we're going to revisit that later on in this, in this message. But I want you to remember we were brought to the family of God as Gentiles. Now, Peter picks up this idea of a real, complete, and unprecedented change for those who are in Christ. Peter does this by revealing Three important elements of the transformational power of Jesus Christ. What's the first element? The first transformation that Peter talks about is a change in genealogy and ethnicity. Now, this is going to blow your mind. Put your seatbelt on. Because God is teaching us, and Peter's saying, that you literally had your ancestry and your ethnicity changed. I I promise you everybody not getting this kind of teaching. (laughs) You had, look look at verse 9. Verse 9 in 1 Peter chapter 2. But you are a chosen race. A royal priesthood, look at that last part, a holy nation. Now, the Greek word for race in this text is genos. And it's spelled G-E-N-O-S. This is the same word from which we get the English word genealogy. And as you may know, genealogy is a study or science of ancestry. Go to Ancestry.com, find out who your peeps were. (laughs) (laughs) Now, it is no accident that Peter here, in writing to Gentile Christians who lived in a world where everything depended on ancestry and family history, Peter now tells them that they are transformed from their former status to this new status of being chosen or members of God's elect family. Peter is here expanding on his previous comments in chapter 1, verse 1, where he describes these believers as elect exiles. Peter wants us to know that by the transforming power of Christ, they received a new ancestral identity. One that is far greater than their earthly designation. 
I told you that we would revisit what Paul said. And it's right here that we will do so. Now, remember, as we walk through this, everything in their world. Not much different than ours, but everything in their world depends on their heritage. On their ancestral claim, land, agriculture, cattle, all dependent on your ancestry. Who were your people? And and riches or poverty was determined by ancestry and inheritance. Some people were locked in the poverty forever because their their family never had anything to pass down to them. These are the people that Peter's talking to. Sort of like some people in our world today, right? Locked in a cycle of poverty. Because no, there's nothing to pass down but pain and hurt. Watch this now. This places in context what Paul says, going back to Ephesians chapter 2. Paul describes this miraculous change in ancestral designation like this. In chapter 2, beginning at verse 13 of Ephesians, Paul says this. But now, in Christ Jesus, you who once were far off, have been brought near by the blood of Christ. Don't miss that, by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace, who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances. In other words, the things that Israel were holding near and dear to their heart, the law, oh, we're good keepers of the law. Jesus said, not not enough. That's gone. That's out. (laughs) So Paul said here, he said they were holding on to those commandments and ordinances and say, you know, we, 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 we're the God's chosen people and all this. Jesus, Paul says Jesus took that away and tore it down. But look at why he did it. That he might create in himself one new man in place of the two. Don't miss that. Don't miss that. He's saying we can't have Israel and Gentiles no more. He says what I'm doing is I'm going to take Israel and Gentiles and bring them together and create something new that nobody ever seen before. Oh, come on, Bethel Gary. You ought to get excited about this because what God is doing here is he's taking white folks and black folks and brown folks and say, I'm going to meld you together into something that this community has never, ever seen before. Watch this. He says, he says, so making peace and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. Look at somebody say the hostility is dead. Jesus killed that hostility. It is clear 
by the context that Paul is saying that the transformational power of Christ is so great that Christ took a people of promise who lived and died by the covenant promise of being God's chosen and the law given to them by God through Moses. And then he connected them with the people who were considered outcasts by these people of promise and then drenched all of them who would believe in, in him with his blood shed on Calvary. In doing this, Christ abolished the hostility between them and made them both into one new man. One new genos. One new genos. One new genealogy that is chosen by God. One new ancestry. His blood transformed our ancestral connections. The reason our ancestry needed transformation is because our earthly inheritance, no matter what we think of it, was woefully insufficient to pay the price of sin and to bring us in the family of God. I don't care if your name is Rockefeller or Vanderbilt or Jones or whatever it is. Your your ancestry is not enough to save your soul. You can be born with a silver spoon in your mouth or you can be born eating spam and eggs. But neither your poverty nor your riches can save you. You don't get to heaven and be able to say, Lord, I was poor, so I get in the kingdom. Lord, they treated me real bad on earth, so I get in the kingdom. You know what he's going to say to you? Depart from me. I never knew you. You don't get in on your earthly status. That's why, that's why people, and and this is a very important message for what we see in our culture today. That's why people who are hoping in their genealogical distinction, it's a zero sum game. Your ancestry is helpless and hopeless to save you. I knew it was going to get quiet there. But look at what God is doing. Watch this now. But Christ was not finished in dealing with ancestry. He wasn't finished with this ancestral transformation, even though he had made two people into one common ancestry, complete with a covenant promise enjoyed by both. He was not finished. (laughs) Peter says to these believers and to us that we are a holy nation. We're a chosen race and a holy nation. The Greek word for nation is ethnos. From which we derive the word ethnicity. This means a tribe, nation, or a people group. Peter says that Christ transforms us into a new nation. Into a new ethnos. A new people group called his church. His body. The new ethnos is unlike any human nation. In that... It is holy, not because it says it's holy. So you got people out there 
in certain ethnicities that say, well, our nation or certain nations, our nation is a holy nation. You're not holy because you say you're holy. That doesn't make you holy. Your declaration of holiness does not make you holy. Hunt somebody and tell them to leave me alone. (laughs) Not holy because you say you're holy. This new ethnos is holy because we are the holy body of Christ. We're holy because Christ is holy. Now, this is critical because Peter wanted believers to know that even though you no longer have an earthly ancestry, you still have a nation. Watch this now. God says, I took you out of your, your, your earthly nation, your earthly ancestry. I didn't leave you hanging, but I gave you a new nation. Watch this now. You still have somewhere that you belong. God knows that we like to belong, don't we? Don't we? We like to belong. We join clubs so we can belong. We join fraternities and sororities so we can belong. We, and some of us join churches just because we're looking for somewhere to belong. We like belonging. Now watch this now. You still have somewhere you belong. For example, no matter where Americans, we're good with this, no matter where Americans travel, their citizenship goes with them. In essence, even in foreign lands, they are always in America in their hearts. I've traveled outside this country, but I never considered myself anything less than an American. And sometimes that's not good. <laughs> you go to some people in some countries, they have to remind you, uh, look here, man, you're not in America. <laughs> but, but, but in my mind, I'm always an American. My citizenship goes with me wherever I go. Now, likewise, even as believers are exiled in this world, we have a holy nation to which we belong. We are always in his church. We are always belonging to his body. We are always in community with other members of that body. How are you going to love your Christ but hate his church, which is his body? How can you love Christ, but you can't stand to connect to the local expression of his body, the local church? Watch this now. Do the people he chose, that God chose, have to meet your approval in order for you to fellowship with them? I'm not going down that church. They have too many sinners down there. We got room for one more. My grandmother used to say, it's plenty good room at the cross, baby. <laughs> we, we have room, for, we have room for, for some more sinners, so come on in. Come on in. We are a new and a holy nation made holy by the transforming power of Christ. Now, he still wasn't finished. We are his people for his own possession. Paul says in another text in Corinthians, understand, we read that earlier, that you are not your own. You no longer, as a believer, have ownership over yourself. So how God must smile patiently when he hears us saying things like, 
Here's what I'm going to do. I don't feel like this. And I don't feel like that. I don't feel like reading my Bible. And he looks at us and said, don't you know? You don't belong to you. You were bought with a price. Oh, y'all ain't getting this. You were bought with a price far more precious than rubies or gold. You were bought with a price, the precious blood of Jesus. So you are people for his own possession. That's what Peter says. He says, he's on the contrary. Believers belong to him. How many times have we seen believers act as if we are in ownership of his church? I'm here to tell you the church does not belong to the pastor. Nor does it belong to the one sitting in, in the worship service today. The church does not belong to the leaders. And it does not belong to those who pay tithes and offerings. The church belongs to Christ. We are people for his possession. And by crafting us into this new nation, Christ made us into his very own people. What sin had destroyed, Christ brought back. What sin had had swept away, Christ reclaimed. And we are now his very own people. Notice the detail that Peter goes to to describe this great change of ancestry and ethnicity. Look at verse 10. He says, once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Peter does a comparison contrast for believers juxtaposing their previous position in the flesh against their new position in Christ. The Greek word for people here is is laos. Spelled L-A-O-S, laos, meaning a people group. Peter is saying that before Christ, whatever your distinction, it was meaningless. I'm irritating some people right now because you're real proud of your heritage. (laughs) You're real proud of where you come from. But let me help you understand. Before Christ, that was meaningless. You were not even a people. Now, can you imagine? Can you imagine for a moment how that must have felt to read that this letter from Peter, somebody you respect, you get this letter in the mail and, and you look at it and he says, you're not, you're not even a people. Now, you, some of us would have been like, what you mean? What do you mean we're not a people? You can't talk to us that way. My mama black. My daddy white. My, my, my family is from Mexico or, or Spain or Korea or, or wherever. How are you going to tell me I'm not a people? Peter said, I said that you weren't a people. You were in the laws of humanity. You were in the laws of man. You were a people of man. By man's designation, you were a people. But that's not who matters. Watch this. <laughs> he might as well say to them, you weren't anybody before Christ. Which is the truth. 
Peter says to them that they are now God's laos. They are God's people. He takes something eternal being designated as the people of God and sits that designation right next to our ethnic and ancestral background. Let me tell you what that's like. Eternal sitting next to your ethnicity. That's like sitting me next to Jesus and say, pick one. I know what y'all do, y'all. Y'all be like, we love you, Pastor. We really do, but uh, we got to go with Jesus over here. <laughs> we, we hanging with the Lord. I'm sorry, you know. As a, see, see, because so you, you know what? Because your choice would be the eternal and it would be the right choice. And so, and so by doing this comparison, Peter demonstrates that being one of God's people is far more precious than whatever I call myself in the flesh. In the laos of the flesh, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. But in the laos of God, all are forgiven. In the laos of the flesh, there's a stumbling stone. In the laos of God, he's the cornerstone. In the laws of the flesh, there is no mercy. But in the laws of God, we are recipients of so great a mercy. We have the flesh. And we have the eternal. I'm black in the flesh. But I'm washed in the blood in the eternal. You may be white in the flesh, but you're washing the blood in the eternal. And what really matters is what is eternal. Because this flesh is going back to the dust from whence it came. Now all the fine people in here just do like this. Just, just look at your fineness just for a minute. And, and recognize that your fineness is going back to the dust. We're we going to cry, we're going to sing songs and remember you. But after a while, all your fineness, we're going to lay you out casket sharp. <laughs> but after a while, all your fineness is going back to the dust. Let me hurry up here. Let me hurry up here. I, I don't want to bore you with this, but, but there's, a, there's a second transformation that happens. Now, this transformation is a new identity. What Peter says is, he says, you are now a royal priesthood. Look at somebody and say, I'm royalty. That's, that's what you tell them. Now, we will not delve as deeply into this transform, transformative work of, of identity. However, I must note that by saying we have a new identity as royal priests, Peter alludes to the previous statement he made regarding the priesthood of believers back in verse 5. In 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 5, he says, You yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood. So he had let the cat out the bag a little, a little while earlier. That your identity was about to be changed. Your identity gets changed in Christ. You are now a royal priesthood. Now, after such a detailed and forthright presentation of who Christ transformed us to be, Peter now shows us the true identity of believers. We are a royal priesthood. Peter uses the word royal 
to again encourage the exiles to remember that since Christ is the king of kings, his people are to call are, are called to represent as royalty. If we are his sons and daughters, our dad is a king, then we are his sons and daughters. That makes us royalty. So that we leave no doubt when we represent in the world as to who our father really is. See, you, you know, there's some things that royalty does. They, they live a certain way. Yeah, I like history and all that, and I, I watch the, 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 the history of the kings of England, and, and, and I look at how they live. The king of England walks in a room. He expects everybody to be looking at him. He expects people to bow when he comes by because he acts like what he has been declared to be. He acts like royalty. Now, if you have been declared to be the royal sons and daughters of Christ, you must do what he did. And so, so how is it that you, if your royal father loves the least of these, and that's the mark of his kingship, that he pours out his love to the least of us, how is it that we who are his children say, oh, no, no time to love that one. Oh, I made you mad now. <laughs> we are identified as priests of this new nation temple called the church. This directly impacts our discipleship because if indeed we are priests, then we must know what priests do know and what priests do. We must know what priests know and do what priests do. Here are a few attributes to help you understand your discipleship along this, this, this paradigm or the manner by which you follow Christ from a priestly perspective. You're called to be a royal priest. Here's what, here's what priests do. Here's what you got to know this. Priests know the word of God. Okay? Priests know the word of God. Second thing is priests verbally share the word of God. Amen. Third thing is, priests maintain the temple. The spiritual temple is the church. In other words, stop tearing apart fellow believers. That's against temple maintenance. You're talking about your fellow believers because they don't, they, don't, they don't know what you know. They don't have what you have. They haven't been saved as long as you've been saved. And you want to tear them down? Stop tearing apart, fellow, te- fellow believers. You're tearing down the temple. Yeah. Priests offer sacrifices. Priests give what they have to support the church. Number five, priests give their lives for the sake of the king and kingdom. So the question I want to ask you today as the father of one of my best friends says, what kind of priest are you? Y'all ask Dexter about that. <laughs> what, what, what kind of priest are you? Are you a priest that, 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 that does what a priest, or do you priest in title only? You just like the title of being a royal priest. Now, finally, the third the third transformation, the third transformation that happens with the transformative power of Christ is a new purpose. Everybody say a new purpose. A new 
purpose. Watch this now. In verse 9, go back to 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 9. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession. Now, here's your purpose right here. That you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness and into his marvelous light. Your purpose as a believer is to proclaim the excellencies of Jesus Christ. Since we now know the blessing of receiving new ancestry and ethnicity, as well as the blessing of receiving a new identity, it stands to reason that God did not work all of that through Christ just to leave us idly by trying to figure out what we should do next. On the contrary. Peter reveals to us that we have also received a new purpose for which to fulfill with our very lives. We are to proclaim the excellencies of Christ. Now watch this. To proclaim means this. To tell out or forth. To declare abroad, divulge or publish. To make known by praising or proclaiming or to celebrate. Now that's what it means to proclaim the excellencies of Christ. To proclaim. Are you proclaiming the excellencies of Christ? Now what are we to proclaim? Peter says here the excellencies of Christ. What are those? Those are the virtues or the things of value regarding Jesus. The excellencies. If we were talking about the excellencies of your husband or the excellencies of your wife. You talk about the virtues. The reason why you fell in love with them. The reason why you are, you, you are you're still with them because they have some virtues and and some excellencies that you like. You may not like everything about them. But they have some virtues. That you, that you like. So here's the virtues of Christ. Now what are they? What are they? We need, to, we need to, to, to tell people what the most valuable things about Jesus are. That, that people need to know. What are those things? Here are the things that people need to know about our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Number one, they need to know that he is the rock of ages. Number two, they need to know that he is the way, the truth, and the life. Number three, they need to know that he is the bright and morning star. Number four, they need to know that he is the rose of Sharon. Number five, they need to know that he is the bread of life. Number six, they need to know that he is the living water. Number seven, they need to know that he is wonderful counselor, the prince of peace, the mighty God, the everlasting father, the world needs to know. He is all these things and so much more. But there is one more of his excellencies we must proclaim. Yes, he's bread. Yes, he's water. But he is a savior. He is a savior who shed his innocent blood for the sins of all who would believe in him. He's a savior. He's a savior that left the glories of heaven, the the glories of having angels sing his praises to come down to a stable in Bethlehem to be born of a virgin Mary. He's a savior who took the ridicule, the hurt, and the pain of rejection, shame, and sin. 
The Bible says, cursed is he that hangs on a tree. And Jesus said, I'm going to hang on a tree. God, you can put all of their sins on me. And he hung there on Calvary. While we were yet in our sins, Christ died for the ungodly. So why? Why must we proclaim his excellencies? Because it is he that has called us out of darkness. Think about where you were before Christ. You didn't even know how dark it was. You thought you were living life, having fun, enjoying yourself, and you were walking and stumbling around in darkness. He has called us out of this darkness into the marvelous light. In the darkness I was lost, but in the light I can see the glory of a risen Savior. In the darkness there was no hope, but in His light there is a hope that does not disappoint. In the darkness is hate, racism, sexism, unforgiveness, pain, disappointment, discrimination, prejudice, pride, and division. But in His light is the unity of His light that draws men unto Him. He said, and I, if I be lifted up, I will draw all all men unto me in his light is unity and brotherhood love beyond compare come into the light my brothers and sisters bask in the light don't leave the light and try to tiptoe into the darkness. Don't leave the light and put your foot in the darkness. Some of us play the hokey pokey with the darkness. We are children of the light and we go in the darkness, put your right foot in, take your right foot out. Don't, don't do that with darkness. You are a child of light. Thomas Dorsey wrote a song that said, walk in the light. The beautiful Light, come where the dewdrops of mercy shine bright. Oh, shine all around us by day and by night. Jesus is, Jesus is the light of the world. Let's stand in this place. Walk in the light.